What up, Fight fans? Welcome back to a very special post-fight edition of the Tale of the Tape Boxing Podcast. I'm your host, Kenny Keith of TheBoxingRant.com, and back with me yet again for episode 42, my co-host, Vince Cummings. What up, Vin? What's going on, Ken? Not much, brother. It was an electric scene last night in Montreal, Canada, as it marked the return of Sergei Kovalev, the crusher, as he defended his unified light heavyweight championship against former champion Jean Pascal. The scene was set from the Bell Center last night, wasn't it, Ben? I don't think there's too many places in, in the fight world right now where you're going to get an atmosphere like the Bell, Bell Center presents, man. It's, it's electric in there for sure. No doubt about it. And they were ready to rock in their seats from the very beginning of the telecast. It was Jim Lampley, Max Kellerman, and Bernard Hopkins made his way to the announcing booth, which was a nice change from the normal HBO crew. I thought Bernard handled it really well last night. I wouldn't mind to see him get a few more fights. I thought overall he brought great insight to the fight. Yeah, his, his analysis during the fights was really good. Absolutely. So let's get right to the fight. The scene was set. It was electric. Luis Pabon, the referee, starts the fight, and the two come out. And I tell you what, man, my adrenaline just skyrocketed from yeah. that point on. Yeah, man. They, they came out you know, pretty quick, too. Yeah, absolutely. Kovalev made his mark early. He focused with the jab to the body. Mm -hmm. It was a way to keep Pascal off of him and to also keep Pascal from keeping his hands in a comfortable position to be able to launch his offense from. It was another great example of distance control last night from Kovalev. They got chippy early and often in this fight. Yeah, it was physical and you were, you were kind of wondering where it was going to go there after the first round. Pascal spent most of the first round taking straight jabs to the abdomen but closed the round aggressive, which seemed to be the signature for most of this fight, mm -hmm. was Pascal was sizing up what Kovalev's game plan was. And he looked like he was trying to set some traps for Kovalev, didn't it? Yeah, it did. I, I was really impressed with his, his attack, his, his plan of attack in that fight. The jab to the body came in high volume in the second round. Sergey was slipping quickly and spinning away from Pascal with ease. The first two or three rounds, I really felt that Pascal was slipping back into something that you mentioned in episode 41, where he got mesmerized by Bernard Hopkins in their past fights. I felt that Pascal may become a spectator of this fight and maybe not engage himself much at all. Yeah, he looked like in those first couple rounds, yeah, he was a little caught off guard with, I, I guess, the fact that Kovalev was able to reach him and get to him so easily. And he, instead of reacting, he did seem like he was just watching Kovalev fight. The spectating from Pascal did not serve him right as Kovalev landed a massive, massive bomb sending Pascal through the ropes. I thought the fight was over right there in the third round. Yeah, his legs looked like they were shot. He, when, he, when he got up from that, he was, he was wobbling all over the place. He was saved by the bell is what he was. Definitely. There's no doubt about that. But it was a great round, action-packed for sure. As is the case so many times when a fighter seemingly is hurt, gets saved by the bell, it's almost like that serves as a wake-up call. Mm -hmm. Just like in the Thurman Guerrero fight, where you thought after that knockdown, when he was laying there reflecting on his life, that the ghost was toast. Right. You know, that he was not going to be able to get up and, and fight back, that the fight was over. Pascal came out in the fourth round and showed the heart that he is very well known for. Yeah, that's what you're going to get from, from a truly great fighter like that. When they go down, they, they turn it up from that point. They know they're fighting for their lives at that point. The fourth and fifth round, I really noticed the effects of the counterpunching of Pascal on Sergey Kovalev. It wasn't that it hurt him so much in the same regards as 
that Kovalev was hurting Pascal. Mm -hmm. But it seemed to really throw him off of his fluidity and the continuity of his offensive plan. It kind of confused Sergey a little bit, don't you think? It did, definitely. Uh, Pascal had some really good timing in that fourth round. That's, that's where he started to counter Kovalev really well. Yeah, I agree. Sergey seemed to be tentative. And it, sometimes after he would get rocked or they were in close where Pascal was able to effectively assert those powerful punches, those sort of almost flailing monster, I'm trying to knock you out in one-shot punches, then Sergey seemed confused as to what to do next. We've talked about it numerous times where somebody like Terrence Crawford gets hit with one of those punches. Oh, dude, he's firing back immediately. Right. Sergey seemed like he didn't know exactly what to do. Like he needed a second to sort of be like, you know? yeah, yeah, he did. He he took the punches pretty well for the most part. I think we saw that Kovalev's got a pretty good chin because oh, pa- Pascal's a puncher and he landed some big overhand rights. There was some speculation from media members that I'm not going to throw under the bus right now because they do get paid to do their jobs. Oh, yeah. Um, that the entire song and dance that was going on pre-fight about the drug testing, that the groundwork was being laid by the Pascal camp to avoid being tested at all costs. I'm not sure about the speculation. I just think we are seeing for the first time Kovalev get hit by somebody that can hit almost as hard as him. Yeah, I, you know, there's always going to be speculation when you see a guy like Pascal and he's got that, you know, he's just completely ripped and just a, a, about as muscular and about as good of a body as any boxer in the sport right now. So I understand, but I mean, you know, you don't want to speculate too much on a guy that, that just did what he did in the ring last night, man. No, you don't. And especially somebody that that has the respect level of a lot of people in the industry. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you can speculate about anybody in this sport. Right. The fact is, if there's no drug testing in place, then that conversation will always be had. Right. I, I don't care who's involved in it. Yep. He'd be yes. the most you know, admired and reputed person, as we have seen in many other sports. It's the ones that are the least assuming are probably the ones that are doing it. Yeah, true. You know what I mean? All right, so back to the fight. The sixth round. It was a close round. During this sixth round, I felt the tension of the fight. I felt this fight was even at this point. Mm -hmm. Kovalev was more active. He was very accurate with a lot of his punches. He was saving a lot of the harder punches. His game plan was becoming more conservative, and he wasn't jumping in there because he had tasted it and knew, why go in there and mix it up with this guy and get hurt when I can pick my moment yeah. and attack at that point? Yeah, he he had figured out what Pascal was trying to do to him, and he knew the, the safe bet was to be safe and be calculated in his attack. When he got in and mixed it up on the inside with Pascal, you could tell Pascal was, was the better fighter on the inside. His flurries were better. It kind of seemed like Kovalev kind of just threw some straight punches out there, and he could not could not find Pascal in close. No, he could not. You're exactly right. The seventh round, Kovalev took control of the fight. Yeah. He outboxed him and outpunched him. Things were starting to take a toll on Pascal, on his approach. You could tell by the accumulative damage under his eyes. His right eye was closing fast. Yeah, you saw a lot of blinking. He looked glazed over. He just looked like his legs... It almost looked like his legs never really fully recovered from that first knockdown. Yeah. But he, he, he got him under enough to, to get him to the seventh round. But you could tell the, the tank was running on E at that point. The end of the seventh round, Kovalev landed another huge shot, hurting Pascal. When they came into the eighth round, okay, a lot of things happened that reached the end result of this, okay? First and foremost, Kovalev flat out just staggered Pascal. Yeah. Hurt him so bad that Pascal went stumbling across the ring into the ropes. Kovalev came with him to try to finish it. They got tangled up. Kovalev goes down to the canvas. So Kovalev gets up, separated by the ref, okay? Pascal steps backwards, stumbling. Yeah. You can watch it over and over again. Some people said that he slipped in the wet corner, which may have something to do with it, but his legs buckled before he ever slipped, okay? So when the two were separated, as Kovalev was getting up, Pascal was sent to the neutral corner because at that point, when he hit the water, he was in Kovalev's corner. Right. He was sent to the neutral corner. When he got to the corner, he was being held up by the ropes. When the ref said fight and Kovalev came forward once again, this is when I knew that what was about to happen was completely justified. Instead of standing his ground, moving out of the corner, or mounting some sort of effective defense, Pascal covered up and 
tilted over. Mm-hmm. He bent over and covered his head. That tells me, if I'm the referee, it told me as a fan, if I'm the referee and I see a fighter act like that, it says, don't hit me, don't hit me. Right. He got caught behind the ear after that and kind of just leaned forward and looked like his body was dead for a couple seconds. Yeah, absolutely. I I saw absolutely no problem with the stoppage. No, not at all. Two solid, massive right hands. They were monster shots. I thought he was out on his feet right there. Yeah. The fact that that guy could stay on his feet at that point in time, man, that is something impressive, boy. It was a remarkable, remarkable fight. I thought that fight had an electricity and a tension that was completely missing mm-hmm. from the Thurman Guerrero fight. Yeah, without a doubt. The tension was palpable in this Kovalev-Pascal fight. The crowd was nervous. Their guy was taking some monster shots. What was your overall opinion about this fight then? What did you take away from Pascal, from Kovalev? Paint me your entire picture. I think Pascal showed us, I mean, we knew the guy had heart coming into this fight. He showed us a different level of heart. And I think he won over fight fans even more than he already had before this fight. I think everybody is looking forward to see Pascal fight again because you know he's going to give you everything he has any time out. Kovalev, once again, I mean, just showed he's a master of of distance. He showed us that he could be even more calculated than he was against Bernard Hopkins at times. The one thing I do pull away from this fight on the Kovalev side of things is I think there might be a slight chink in the armor. And we saw Pascal get on the inside and start to work. He was definitely more successful. And if you can get a fighter that is able to implement that for a longer stretch of time, and maybe accumulate some more damage on Kovalev, I think he could be in for some tough fights if he runs into that fighter. You never know. I mean, there's not really a guy out there in the light heavyweight division that's a super pressure fighter right now. So we'll see. There's a guy coming up in the ranks that's, he's got a long way to go to get there, but we'll see if uh, if Betterbiev can't be that guy at some point in time. Betterbiev's going to have to show some kind of inside game himself. Yeah. Because if Betterbiev has the same come forward, seek and destroy approach as Sergey Kovalev, it's going to take him three or four years to develop into the kind of fighter that Kovalev already is. Yeah, I think you're definitely right. He's, he's a couple years away, at least. I took the same thing away from it that you did. The one thing that I see missing from Kovalev's arsenal is some kind of short hook uppercut game Yeah, where he can launch his offense from in close. He looked uncomfortable at throwing punches when he was that close in. Yeah, he was throwing really short, straight punches that looked like rock'em, sock'em robots at times. It did, it did. And that I guess that sort of takes me back to my initial point from the beginning of the conversation was that Kovalev, when he got touched up on the inside, seemed like it threw him out of his rhythm completely. It did, yes. I've seen people, the reaction to this fight range from... Obviously, people, some people bitching about the stoppage. Other people, I've, I've heard some proclamations that because Pascal landed hard punches on Kovalev, that Adonis Stevenson will easily knock out Sergey Kovalev. Two completely different fighters and com- completely different styles. Stevenson was ringside then. Yeah. Apparently, he whispered in somebody's ear after the fight, probably at the bequest of his handler, Al Heyman, to go up there and you know pitch the traditional company line from um, the handbook. What's it called again? 99 ways to, what what did you call it? 99 ways to 99 ways for an idiot to dodge a fight. Yeah. Yeah. And says that, yeah, he's ready for Kovalev. Oh, of course. Uh, Now, right? Yeah. Yeah, of course. We saw him get punched a couple times. So now he's ready. It's pretty clear. Like we talked about in the preview episode that Kathy Duva says, okay, here's the fight. And then Sergei says, okay, yeah, let's fight. right? Right. But how much is the relationship frayed or damaged or or hurt between main events and Al Heyman? Because if you recall, there was a lawsuit where main events was suing Al Heyman and they dropped the lawsuit. I forgot all about that. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I don't know how much damage is like residual damage is done from that. Mm -hmm. So in this case, I mean, obviously, Al Heyman has said that they'll work with anybody, right? There's fighters that that are fighting in the PBC that are not. Al Heyman guys. Right. Johnny Gonzalez is one of them. We do know this. Kathy Duva did announce after the fight that the next fight for Sergey Kovalev will be Najib Muhammadi. He will finally get his mandatory IBF shot. Muhammadi will be the next fight. And whatever comes after that, whoever wants to step up to the plate can get it. You know what? Muhammadi does deserve the shot as much as people are going to 
bitch and complain about not wanting to see that fight because there's no way Mohamedy stands a chance. The guy has has continually won fights waiting for his chance. You got to give it to the guy. Here's the thing with Mohamedy. He's a come-forward fighter. He's an aggressive fighter. I saw him in the undercard fight for Alien Crusher. He came forward, attacked, and completely just destroyed his guy and got him out of there. That is the exciting thing about this fight. I have a feeling, though, that he will be more like Beboot Shumanov, somebody that we thought was going to crack in there with Bernard Hopkins that got completely bewildered and just, he was in la-la land in that fight, threw his style out the window and was standing there like a spectator just watching. It was almost like those snake charmers sitting there with their little flute and the the snakes just dancing. Beboot Shumanov was, was just a snake. And it was like, hold on a second. I thought this guy was a banger. Yeah. I thought he cracked. I feel like even though that this is Mohammed's style, if he fights that way, it'll make for one hell of a fight, but it won't last very long. Yeah, well, I was going to say, we'll see how long that lasts. I mean, I don't know you know, how good Mohammed's chin is, but yeah, I don't think he wants to get too much into that. No, not at all. I think it'll be an exciting fight anyways. I mean, Mohammed has put himself on the line before, and it's cost him. There's no doubt about that. But either way, I mean, Kovalev's fighting. I'm down. Yeah. Yeah, I take away from this fight, Vin, really that Kovalev is as good as advertised. It kind of is reassuring for me in some regards, though, that he still has things to work on. Yeah. And I think that he's a cerebral enough fighter. And from what I gather from all of the interviews that I've I've read or seen from John David Jackson is that it's not one of these things where he as a trainer has to really say, okay, we need to work on this, this, and this. He'll talk about it with Sergey. And then Sergey does a lot of work on his own. Right. So he'll actually take these things and stand in front of a mirror and work on these technical things that he needs to work on. So then when it's time for him and John David to get back together and to go into training camp, he sort of comes back into camp with a few new tricks in his bag. You know what? I really like that corner relationship during a fight with those two. They, they got a really good chemistry. And I think John David Jackson is, is like the perfect guy for Kovalev. It is not an overstatement. It's not hyperbole to discuss the importance of a cornerman as it pertains to a upper echelon, high-end fighter. So much of the elite success, obviously it's the time, the dedication, the sacrifices, you know, just the pure blood, sweat, and tears of it all, and couple that with natural ability. Right. But when you have the right person in your ear, there's a lot to be said about that. People talk about the success of Carl Frotch has so much to do with Rob McCracken that if McCracken, if it were any other person in there besides him, Frotch's career would look totally different because he has an ability to be the calming factor that is able to communicate in a successful way Mm -hmm. in the corner to get his points across, not having to yell and scream, but talking to them in a very productive manner. And John David Jackson is able to do it through a language barrier pretty much. Yeah, and that's really, really impressive. You see that a lot with some of the these relationships, unique relationships, ones of fighters and trainer of different nationalities. You see it with Freddie Roach and Manny Pacquiao. I mean, you have that couple with the fact, not only, I know Manny speaks pretty good English now, but you have through the fact that the ability to speak in general for Freddie Roach is very difficult these days. Yeah, and you know what? The sweet science is, is almost a universal language, you know what I mean? Yeah, that's a great, great line, and I could not. Could not agree with you more there, for sure. So, Sergey, the crusher Kovalev, technical knockout in eight. Luis Pabon stops the fight. Jean Pascal is the man we thought he was, showing great grit, heart, and a really solid chin because he took some massive, massive right hands from the crusher. Yeah, I think it played out pretty much how we expected it to. Absolutely. Probably two more fights this year from Sergey Kovalev. It looks like if they are unable to secure a really big fight. Um, they'll either give it to an up-and-comer or it could be Mohamedy and Chalemba back-to-back. I'd be okay with both those fights. Yeah, I mean, hey, look, it, there's not going to be a lot of guys that probably want to fight them, so. All right, on that note, then, let's take a look at the light heavyweight landscape, then. Obviously, you have the recognized lineal champion in Adonis Stevenson, and I'll believe that shit when I see it. Yeah. For sure. Uh, B-Hop is still ranked number two behind Kovalev in the rings ratings. And obviously that fight's not going to happen again after the first fight. And, and and for all intents and purposes, man, I mean, Hopkins is basically retired anyways. There are interesting matchups though, okay? So you got Jurgen Brommer. That's an interesting name for sure. Yeah. We saw Chalemba fight last night. You got Andrew Fanfara, mm-hmm. who I think is officially a Heyman guy. 
So I'm not sure how possible that is. Najee Mohammadi will be the next fight. Gabriel Campillo will be fighting Artur Beterbiev on the undercard of Stevenson Bika, which should be a good test for Beterbiev. But at this point, Campillo, six losses. He's up there in age. Mm-hmm. Not sure if that would really be the right fight for Sergey Kovalev anyways. But there are guys that are below him at super middleweight that sure as hell need to stop bitching, moaning, and dodging, and sleeping, and acting like they're retired that could step up to the plate oh, if yeah. they really wanted a challenge. Yeah. I'll tell you what, man. This may be in my dream world right here, but how awesome would Cobra Kovalev be? Oh, it would be an amazing fight. I, I don't know if, if Carl wants the risk that goes with that fight and maybe not the notoriety that he's looking for in a big, huge fight, but, man, that would be an unbelievable matchup. I feel like that would be a pretty dangerous fight for Kovalev, though. Oh, yeah. Because of the reach advantage that that Frotch poses. And like you said last week, the hammer of Thor right hand. If Kovalev got caught flush by one of those, um, it it could really change the the tide of the fight for sure. You can't be uh, jumping in and out really with Frotch that much. No, no, it would be a very risky fight for Kovalev. There's a lot to still unfold in the light heavyweight division and in boxing in general. So we do know who the next opponent is for Kovalev, and whoever is after that, we'll just take them as they come. Yeah. For sure. As long as he's fighting, man, I'm good with it. Yeah, me too, me too. So the Crusher wins by an eighth-round stoppage over Jean Pascal. So we move to the undercard, Steve Cunningham versus Vyacheslav Glaskov, a.k.a. Slava Glaskov, a guy that I saw fight in person on the undercard of Kovalev versus Hopkins. I can tell you what, I was not impressed with him against Darnell the Dingling Man in that fight. And coming into this fight, I thought for sure that it was going to be a completely lopsided match. And it turned out that it was actually about as even as they come. Yeah, he just seems like a very unmotivated fighter. Doesn't man. He? Do you actually want a boxer? Is, is somebody making you do this? Yeah, you wonder the heart. You do. You yeah. do. And and the comments made by his corner saying that there's just a lot of people in his ear, it does lead you to believe that that is probably the case. Yeah, I feel like that. some of those Eastern European and Russian fighters like that, I, I feel like that happens. They get They got too many people chattering, telling them what to do. Yeah, they rely on him too much, yep, you know? Yep. Well, Steve Cunningham, we all know his story. His his daughter Kennedy was born with hypoplastic left heart syndrome. It's a condition that that doctors typically find during pregnancy. Uh my cousin Jax was born with the same syndrome and only lived five months. I know the trial and tribulations and the impact that that had on on his parents, my cousins Lindsay and, and Alex, and how it impacted our family. So I can only imagine the sort of things that, that Steve Cunningham had to endure with that being his daughter and the fact that, that she made it past those critical months that my cousin Jax did not make it past. They were seen by the same doctors in Pittsburgh that operated on them. Uh, fortunately for Kennedy, she's got her heart transplant. Everything went well. So to all of those people on Twitter that were probably better off just jumping off of a building or diving into a deep canyon somewhere that make comments about you know his daughter and about Talking about that during the fight, I can tell you from firsthand experience that uh, he is every bit deserving of the sympathies and the levels of praise that are heaped upon him and his family, and especially his daughter for being a little fighter herself. Yeah, I think at this point, getting in the ring is probably the easy part for Cunningham. You know, trying to be the the strength for his family and his daughter. The way he fights in the ring, you can tell that guy is just all heart, man. Yeah, absolutely for sure. There is irony in it that these children that are born with this condition are the ones that really show the meaning of heart. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? That they're the ones that in such a little package, I remember when, when my cousin was born and he had two open heart surgeries and ended up leaving us at, you know, uh, five months, he ended up passing away. But I just remember holding him in my arms and, and just feeling like the power that this little child had, you know what I mean? That, that this little tiny thing is putting up, the biggest fight in the world and and sitting there with a child going through that in your hands makes you really consider the things that you've had to deal with. Everybody goes through their own trials and tribulations, but man, does this kind of thing really put into perspective what is important and what is really just petty nonsense. You're you're exactly right, man. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So God bless Kennedy. and, And I wish her the best. I hope her heart grows strong inside of her body and that she lives a long and full life. Cunningham is the man, got in the ring, put his heart on display once again, fighting for his family, 
um, in a fight against Glasskoff, pretty evenly matched fight. Had Cunningham in the beginning winning three out of the first four rounds, and then I had Glasskoff closing the fight, winning the last three rounds. I really feel like this would have been a decisive victory for Glasskoff based off of youth, strength, just the, the, the factors that you would think somebody of his age and, I guess, prospect status, he would have those advantages. But like you said, where was his heart? Yeah, where, where's the go get it at, buddy? We're like, come on, man, hit the switch. What the hell is going on? I have no idea, man. No idea. I scored the fight 115 to 113 for Cunningham after further review. Watched it last night. Watched it again this morning. Had a 117 to 111 last night. Uh, had it much closer this morning. The judges scored at 116 to 112, 115, 113, 116, 112. For Glasskoff, I was shocked by that. I know you weren't. I, I can understand the 115, 113. The 116, 112s, there, there's no way that, that uh, Cunningham only won four rounds in that fight. I mean, it's just, it's impossible. The fact that this was a heavyweight eliminator, the fact that Cunningham had fought so many top-level fights that were not in the spotlight had really incurred a lot of heavy mileage to be able to get to that point where he's on a televised fight on a big card on HBO, Mm -hmm. and then to sort of suffer this kind of a decision, man, I guess at the end of the day, there are things in his life that are much more important than the results of this fight. He'll be back. He'll get another chance. Okay, the Isaac Chalemba fight. What was up with this dude for silly, man? Were him and Glasskoff like just slamming vodka before the fight or something? man? Both of these guys look like they were in La La Land. They're sleepwalking through... Big time opportunities is what they're doing, and you know what? As far as as I'm concerned, when you see a fighter do that, they're they're just not motivated, man. This is your chance. You're on HBO, big stage, man. Show us what you're made of. Prove something. Make me want to come watch you fight again. These guys did absolutely nothing to make me want to even think about or even care about when they fight again. Yeah, I don't understand it, man. I mean, I guess it's just true in any sport. There's some guys that really embrace the spotlight, and in the most pressure-packed moments, they rise to the occasion. Mm-hmm. You know, the old the old saying, the cream rises to the top, right? Yep. And there's some guys that just kind of collapse, crumble like a folding chair. Yep, and that's what the, both of them did. All right, so that'll do it for HBO Championship Boxing. Sergey Kovalev takes out Jean Pascal in eight. The ref stops the fight. Um, in an action, action-packed fight. Can't wait to go back and watch that one again. A successful night for Crusher and company in main events. And we look forward to the next fight sometime in the upcoming months from Sergey Kovalev. So now we move to Friday night. Premier Boxing Champions debut on Spike TV. Let me get your initial thoughts about this production as compared to NBC's version. I thought I thought it was a lot cleaner and a lot less structured. I feel like it came off way better than than the PBC on NBC did. I thought the the announce team was better. I thought uh, Dana Jacobson handled her spot to lead into things better than than Al Michaels did. It seemed more natural, more clean. I just thought overall it came off better than than the PBC on NBC. Remember we discussed in the in the post fight of the PBC on NBC, uh, one of the comments that I had made, and and actually you you had brought it up about how it seemed when Al Michaels was doing his intro that he was just kind of in like a gigantic empty room or something mm-hmm. like that, and I had made a comment, yeah, why don't they fill in the crowd around those ramps? I don't know if they're listening to this show. If they are, then they probably don't like us too much, but <laughs> um, they did exactly that, and and I'm sure that had a lot to do with you know I know Al Heyman pulls the trigger on all the decisions over there at Heyman Boxing and Premier Boxing Champions and, and pretty much everybody else that, that, that works for him. But uh, Spike did a good job in adding energy. I thought Dana Jacobson was, was really good. Yeah, I don't know was. if she was necessary for the production. Right. You know, It seemed like they just had way too many guys. And, then we, and what was up with this, uh, this Joe Rogan impersonator? You know, I don't know a whole lot about Jimmy Smith. I don't follow the, the Bellator MMA series on Spike. But, yeah, I'm not sure what he – do we really need an MMA guy in there? What, what is his – his knowledge as far as boxing goes. I mean, I'm sure he watches boxing, but yeah. but then again, maybe he doesn't because I don't watch much MMA. Right, exactly. You know, um, yeah, maybe he ties that audience, that Spike audience. You it, know? it did. It did seem like they were kind of trying to to pull those audiences together. They're showing the the MMA fighters in the crowd and basically trying to create, I guess, some type of hey, we're we're a fight family on Spike. Yeah, but okay. Well, let me ask you this then: Have you ever been like, oh man, I got to tune into this? My favorite announcer is announcing tonight. No. Okay, so. <laughs> 
Yeah, I, I'm not sure that that served any purpose at all. Scott Hansen was great. Yeah, he was, man. You know, good energy. Yeah, and he was on point. Yes, dude, Scott Hansen and Antonio Tarver, boom. Yep, that's all you need. Did you notice during the open? As soon as Dana Jacobson was done, she made her way through the crowd and made it over to the guys. Scott Hansen starts talking, <laughs> and he turns and he was done talking and he was looking at Jimmy Smith and Jimmy Smith was just <laughs> he was just looking at the camera smiling. And then he turned and looked as if like, what my what you looking at? <laughs> oh, yeah, it's my turn. I got to talk. <laughs> I thought that was pretty funny. Yeah, it was. But uh, yeah, I thought the overall energy was pretty good. Yeah, it was, man. For I, sure. I thought it came off a lot better. They, they learned some things. All right, so let's move to the first fight. PBC on Spike. Sean Porter was supposed to square off against Roberto Garcia. Did you happen to catch the hour lead in? I did not know. It was just like the PBC corner to corner that they did for NBC, Mm -hmm. except this one was for Spike. And it was an hour long produced preview. It was a half hour on the Lopez Berto fight and a half hour on the Porter Garcia fight. They spent a good 15 minutes. They did the whole backstory on Garcia, the story about him being there in the room when his dad killed his mom and then ended up committing suicide. They did this entire production. And then to come to find out the night before the fight or at, at the weigh-in, he didn't, he didn't show up. So rumors were just flying everywhere. Did we ever get a straight answer? <laughs> I heard he had poisoning from B12 poisoning or something like that. I don't know, man. That's That seems uh, – I don't – I've never heard that before. He must have OD'd on Monsters or, or, <laughs> yeah, right? or Red Bulls or something, man. Yeah, I don't know what that was all about. I mean, I know fighters go through a lot to make weight. You know, and some have even went as far to to present science that suggests a lot of the brain trauma that fighters incur over the period of their career actually comes from dehydrating the brain because the brain is made up of mostly water. And during the weight cutting process, they lose the body loses so much water that it actually causes brain damage. Oh, I, I do not doubt it. That's hell to put your body through. The PBC only tells you what they, they fashion the stories to best fit their agenda. Yeah, they're going to hope it just goes away probably and nobody asks about it. We've seen this over both productions Mm -hmm. multiple times where the PBC has thrown in their little agenda during the broadcasts. During the Spike TV documentary thing, the very beginning, as soon as it started, they're like, you know, introducing the fights. They're like, on Spike TV. Andre Berto squares off against Riverside Rocky, Jose Cito Lopez, and coming off of a controversial decision, Sean Porter looks to, and I'm like, what? Yeah, come on. We all watched that fight. He got his ass kicked. So the PBC storyline is, is that Sean Porter is looking to make right the situation that he was wronged in. So this is his chance to show that those judges were wrong. Now, come on. We we all know, man. Porter, in that fight against Brooke, just really, it was kind of an eye-opener to everybody who thought Porter was going to be the next big thing in the welterweight division. You're exactly right. We saw that this kid had some serious work to do. Eric Bonet, his opponent, the replacement for Garcia, last minute. Did you have any idea who this kid was? Had you heard of him before? Hell no. <laughs> no chance. Were you surprised at how game this kid was? That kid was one hell of a fighter, serious counterpuncher. I was very impressed, especially off one day notice. That kid was obviously ready to go. I don't think Porter was ready for that. No. He said he watched film the night before or whatever, man. But I was shocked at the power of Bonet. It got, you know, a little dicey at times there in, in the third, fourth round for, for Porter. I scored the third in the fourth round for Bonet. Yeah. What did you think about the fight? I thought it was pretty good. I will say this. Porter showed a, a jab more than he normally shows the jab. But I do think, again, when, when it came down to him getting aggressive and him trying to end the fight, the guy just, he leaves his head on a platter <laughs> when he is throwing these hooks. And, and trying to get on the inside, he's leaned forward and his chin is just sitting there saying, somebody please just ting me one time. He's just lucky he didn't get tinged in the ding-ding. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Anyways, okay. I, I got some better jokes later in the show. <laughs> I'm here all night. <laughs> all right. Yeah, my first impressions were, man, is that, you know, Bonet was definitely in good shape for the fight. He was definitely the bigger fighter. Yeah. 
Um, taller fighter. Porter, aggressive, but not wild this time. Yeah. He still has a tendency in close quarters when things start to get rough. He gets real frustrated and real feisty in close quarters. Yeah, he's got to figure out how to just rein that in, man. The more calculated approach is going to be what he has to do. If he's going to, against better competition going forward, he's going to have to do that. It was surprising, especially, being, and maybe it was because of the unknown factor with Bonet that he took the calculated approach. It seems to me that this was something that they wanted to prove to themselves. The Porter camp wanted to show to themselves and the fans and the pundits that have criticized that he's just a wrecking ball, that he just wants to mow through people that, you know, like you said, he implemented the jab this time. It became a major part of this narrative, of this fight, of the way that things unfolded. There was nowhere to be seen against Kell Brook. No. And, you know, I know it's difficult to implement your jab when you are the lower center to gravity fighter and you're fighting against an upright guy who is sitting down on his punches with his chin tucked and leaned back. I know it's difficult. Right. Porter definitely showed more control. I think really the turning point in this fight was when Bonet went down and twisted his ankle. Yeah. I, I don't think that by any stretch of the imagination that he was going to be able to go the distance with Porter. Porter had a full training camp, always in impeccable shape, no doubt about that. But Bonet hurt his ankle pretty bad in the fifth, man. The Porter camp has got to be walking away from that fight going we kind of dodged a bullet there. This kid was pretty damn good, and we got, I don't want to say got lucky, but that was not the type of matchup you want. as a. That's not the fighter you want to see as a fill-in matchup guy. It's just, he was really good, man, really impressive. In the end, I think the final result of this fight is what everybody expected. Right. Considering the circumstances and where Porter is considered talent-wise in the division anyways, and ends with a knockout. Yep. Um. Knocks Bonet out of the ring. Jack Reese with his sporting his headband, his LeBron headband. Um, <laughs> what did you think about the headband cameras? They look goofy as hell, man. Oh, man. I felt- I, I'm not sure what purpose they serve either. Really, it's just a kind of like a if – you, if you had that camera on too long, you're liable to have a seizure watching that. Dude, how funny was it, though? It's like, dude, Jack Reese is way taller than these welterweights. <laughs> And every time they would cut to it, it would be of like, you could only see Porter from his nose up. You could just see his eyes and his forehead. And it looked like a little kid, like looking up at their parent going, oh man, my bad. I didn't mean to do that. Like, <laughs> it did, you know, man. like they were in trouble or something. Right. It did. Yeah. I think that everybody, including myself, were pretty impressed with Bonet's performance. He was game. Overall, Porter was far more under control this go around, even though he was still spastic in close quarters. He boxed a much better fight, and the fight was relatively predictable. Yeah, I think we got what we expected, except for the fact that Bonet was a little bit more than than you would expect to see from a fighter coming in off off one-day notice. Completely agree. Andre Berto versus Jose Cito Lopez. Now, we didn't have time to preview this fight in episode 41 as we focused all of our energies on the preview for Kovalev Pascal. Coming into this fight, then, a lot of people were hedging their bets on Lopez, that Berto reportedly had a bad camp, that this was going to be that the smart betting money was going to be on Lopez for this fight. I'll tell you what I thought of this fight, Vin. I thought that this was a shot fighter and a fighter that was teetering, that the PBC and Al Heyman knew that Andre Berto was athletic enough and had heart enough to where, and he's flashy enough, mm-hmm. to where he is definitely a good product to put on a network like Spike, who's looking for some excitement. I'll tell you right now, man, Jose Cito Lopez, whether he's in prime condition or a shot fighter, it's going to be disguised by the fact that he's going to be game and he's going to be out there fighting. It fits the idea that you want to promote the fight as being as even as possible, to make it as interesting as possible, to be able to sell it to the fans. This was very much in the same matchmaking regards as John Molina and Adrian Broner. Jose Cito Lopez was put in this fight to lose. Yes, he was put in this fight to lose, and he was put in this fight because he's a name that everybody at least recognizes. Yep. And, and you can garner some sense of legitimacy off that victory when you beat him. What do you think about the fight? I thought Berto looked pretty good. You know, he, he definitely implemented a new style, which is this probably the third or fourth time we've seen him change up from the shoulder roll to the 
he had kind of kind of more of a full guard on defense and seemed like it helped him out. He was able to deflect shots, maybe not block them completely, but just that deflection to keep it off his face, to keep that bruising down, which we've seen him struggle with. Uh, I, I thought he fought a pretty good fight. But like you said, I could tell by probably about round three or round four, Lopez's legs were done. They weren't there. He yeah. just he would seem like he was just teetering on just falling over, not even getting hit. So, yeah, I think you're definitely right. Lopez is, is a shot fighter, and I think that's pretty much been proven. He went down, but he really didn't take that much punishment. And it just, you know, people are complaining about the stoppage and all that. I, it wasn't early. Yeah, but Lopez was done. He was done. Yeah, that fight was over. I don't think it should have been stopped then either. I thought they should have at least let the fight go on for, you know, for, I don't know, the viewer's sake. Right. But it's neither here nor there for sure. I will say this about this new sort of style that we're seeing from Andre Berto. He has not mastered it because he looked robotic. He did. I do like his new technique, but it is not natural to him, which makes him look mechanical in there. Mm -hmm. He didn't throw enough punches in the middle of the ring. When things moved away from the middle of the ring and the two fighters became closer, which you saw, which ended up resulting in the end of this fight anyways, Berto was far more comfortable fighting in close quarters Yes, where he was able to naturally react as opposed to having to think about it. Uh, I agree. Because you could tell he was thinking about what he was doing early on in that fight. Yeah, I mean, he's trying to implement that new style and it just wasn't coming off smooth for him. Another thing that we've seen with him before, and we, we saw it again last night, the kid needs to move his damn head. He, his head is so stationary. You got to just bob and weave a little bit, Berto, just a little bit. He gets caught too easily. Yeah, I agree completely. It was funny at the end of this fight again, then they were talking about how it shouldn't have been stopped and Lopez was up on the cards and it was controversy and you know this, that, and the other. And Hanson tried to steer the ship back towards we need to be focusing on Andre Berto here because this is the guy that's probably going to be fighting on Spike from now on. Right. Right. He's going to probably be a house fighter on Spike. Mm -hmm. And as soon as Hanson tried to redirect the conversation and focus back on Berto, oh man, Antonio Tarver did such a great job, but he slipped out of line that just caught Twitter on fire when he, he goes, this fight now puts Berto at the top of the welterweight division. I sent out a tweet immediately that said, there are 10 fighters at the 147-pound division that would be favored by Vegas to stop Berto inside of 12 rounds. Uh, without a doubt. He is not. I mean, he's fringe top 10. Yeah, he is fringe top 10. Okay, number 10 in the ring rankings for the welterweight division already beat him in the Ghost. Right. <laughs> oh, man. I swear. Can it just be what it is? Can it just be it was an exciting night? Like, it was an action-packed, entertaining night. It wasn't the best night of boxing in the world. No. But it was fun. Right. And, you know, I enjoyed watching this far more than I did NBC. Why do they have to make it seem like they're building to this thing that is going to... If they are building towards these build-the-fighter-up epic showdowns to it comes to a head and they fight for this new PBC belt, the PBC belt is going to add one more layer of laughability towards championship belts because it's not a full field of the of the best fighters so why can't it just be what it is an exciting night of fighting berto wins he's got his career on track we look forward to the next time we see him in the ring roll credits right we, we don't need to be fed a line that we all know as as true boxing fans is is complete garbage i mean come on yeah well i guess probably i would assume two-thirds of that audience we're just Spike fans, Spike TV watchers, and general sports fans and MMA fans anyways. Yeah, you're probably right. Yeah, so, like, <laughs> they would know the difference anyways. <laughs> right. You know? All right, Chris Ariola versus Curtis Harper. Boy, Ariola looked like he was in just tip-top shape, huh? I don't know. It was a contest. It was a contest between Harper and Ariola. I think, I think, I think, I think Harper was definitely in better shape. Oh, yeah. I mean, those were just completely ripped guys in there. Yeah, there was definite need of a brawl in this fight. For, oh, yeah. For, not a brawl. Not, <laughs> it ended up being a brawl. No, I, I said a brawl for the boobs. <laughs> there were some boobies flying around in that ring. Do we really need to see Ariola try to make a, you know, a big fight in the heavyweight division? I really just, look, we've been there before. The guy cannot handle the top of the division. His fights are entertaining because, yes, he gets hit and he hits. 
and he gets hit hard and he hits hard, but it's just kind of just so sloppy at times and just, uh, it's, it's tough to watch. I think you and I have talked about this off the air. Areola is there for two reasons. Reason number one was because they had trouble selling tickets for this fight. Yes. And he's a hometown fighter. So they put him on the card to sell tickets. Secondly is, and this would be just a fortuitous byproduct of having him on the cards. So A, we put him on to sell tickets. And hopefully what we get out of it is Areola has a good showing. So we have an opponent for Deontay Wilder. Yeah, I think that's definitely what they're thinking. And if that's what they're going to feed us, I'm going to tell you what, man, that's 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 some bullshit right there, buddy, because Areola has no business in the ring with Wilder. Wilder would pick him off in two rounds. But here's the thing. Areola would be the second best fighter he's ever fought. <laughs> that is true. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, you're definitely right. Yeah. That's pretty sad. That is really sad. Okay, so it was a total slugfest. Yeah, it was. I mean, it looked like two drunk guys. It looked like bum fights. You ever watch bum fights on YouTube before? Yeah, it did you know, look like that. Give the two drunk bums 20 bucks and have them just wail on each other? By the eighth round, they just looked like just plotting giants, just swinging these slow. It looked like it was in slow-mo. <laughs> Who did you think won the fight? It was really tough to call. I thought, at times, Harper looked really, really good and landed some nice punches. But Ariola's stays active and presses the fight. So you give it to him. It was real close. I thought it was dead even after six, probably. And I think Ariola won the, the eighth round and probably won the fight based on winning that eighth round. Yeah, I scored at 76-75 for Ariola. The knockdown was the difference, in my opinion. I thought the judges were smoking some crack. They made it seem like this was some lopsided fight. Right. The way the scorecards read. 78-73, come on. Yeah, no, that's not even close. No, it wasn't close at all. Ariola was equally as flabby, out of shape, and flailing. Flabby and flailing. That's what, <laughs> that's what the fight poster should say. <laughs> All right, so PBC on Spike TV. So overall, better feeling now about Premier Boxing Champions? Yeah, I think they made a few changes and made it a little bit better. They still got some work to do, though. I, they have a lot of work to do. We still don't know what the end game is. No going to be some giant secret that we're not privy to because we're ungrateful little shits. They don't care about us. That have not been taken advantage of quite enough yet. No, okay. of course. Give it to me some more, please. Okay, I'll give it to you some more, Ben. <laughs> the numbers. PBC's viewership numbers. Everybody was most curious about what their numbers would look like going back to network television as opposed to how they have been over the past years on HBO and Showtime. The higher-viewed fights on HBO and Showtime, somewhere between 1.3, 1.4 million. We have to put these into perspective, okay? Mm -hmm. So we're going to take that number, and you're going to put HBO in about 30 million homes. NBC is available in 116 million homes. They average 3.4 million viewers, okay? It peaked at 4.2 million between 10.30 and 11 o'clock during the Thurman Guerrero fight. The PBC will use the numbers and put them directly against the total numbers from HBO and Showtime. Right. They're not going to try to put it into perspective for you. They want most people will only hear this had 3.4, this had 1.4, the PBC is more popular. Correct? Correct. That's the way that they will paint this. So, is it really a good number? I say no. This isn't me being pessimistic at all about the PBC. I put it in perspective like this then, okay? In 2014, that time slot that Premier Boxing Champions held Saturday night in 2014 averaged about 5 million viewers. So the PBC actually lost viewers compared to 2014's numbers for the same exact time slot. I'm not surprised. I really am not. So they'll, But they'll pitch it to you like compared to what boxing had been doing on a much smaller audience. Oh, it's, this is fantastic. But the way NBC looks at it is like, well, thank the Lord that you are actually paying for this time slot because we lost a million viewers compared to last year. Yeah, if, if they were, if NBC was paying and that was say a, like a pilot episode, it'd been done. They would have never, it would have never come off the ground. No, never. They would have dropped it. Yep. Because that million viewers is a huge, huge deal. Oh hell yeah, as it, it is. As it pertains to to advertising dollars. Definitely, for sure. definitely. So now that I've kind of run over my breakdown of those numbers. Are you as impressed with the PBC numbers now? 
I'm not as impressed, no, when you break it down like that. I will say this for the sport. At least there was more eyes on it. I agree. So, you know, that's the good thing. The bottom line is there was more eyes on the sport. So going forward, that's what boxing needs right now. Sure. But I guess the question remains, will NBC be the platform for it, though? You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, these time buys will not continue. You know, he can't, Al can't afford that. No, the war chest will be emptied at some point. Yep. You know, we've heard reports that they're about three or four years that are good. You know what I'm saying? Like that's, that's their window to be able to obtain enough advertising dollars. Maybe it turns out the NBC says, no, well, you know, if you're not going to continue these time buys, we can put something else on. that's going to get us better numbers and make us more money as far as advertising dollars are concerned. So maybe the PBC just ends up on Spike TV. You know what I'm saying? Right. I don't think that that's bad for boxing. No, not I at all. I think if it's on enough platforms, I think that that's a good thing. Don't expect the next NBC card to have 6 million viewers. No, I think the number probably will drop a little bit. Yeah, because at the end of the day, too, we're not talking about, even though the PBC will pitch it as these are the best fighters in the world, they're only some of them. Yes, a percentage, that is it. A, a percentage, and they're young. Most are unproven, and they're not considered super elite. And, and the rest of their guys are kind of old, journeyman, mm-hmm. no-name guys that they can just throw in there to, to the wolves to take a beating. Yeah, absolutely. So while we're on the topic of boxing and television, Showtime has purchased the rights to televise Kell Brook versus JoJo Dan, 6.15 p.m. Eastern Time on March 28th. Hey, let's let's everybody give Showtime a big big round of applause. I never thought I'd be saying that after last year. Yeah, I, I'm I'm really glad they did this. I do not have to bootleg another fight from the UK. Yeah, this is great, man. I'm I'm looking forward to it because we get Kell Brook versus JoJo Dan in the early evening, and then later on that evening, Johnny Gonzalez defends his WBC featherweight belt against Gary Russell Jr. Yeah, it's going to be a, a great day of boxing, man. Absolutely. All right, man. Well, I guess that will do it for this very special Kovalev Pascal post-fight edition of the Tale of the Tape. Once again, we got a a good main event on a Saturday night after a sleeper of an undercard. Yeah, it was definitely worth the wait, and I'm glad that HBO Championship Boxing is back and running in full effect. There are no big fights on the horizon next week. No fights to preview, but we will be back next week with episode 43. You're looking forward to previewing Johnny Gonzalez versus Gary Russell Jr.? Yeah, we got some interesting fights that weekend. So until next week, be sure to drop by theboxingrant.com for all the archived episodes of the Tale of the Tape Boxing Podcast and The Rant. For my co-host Vince Cummings, who you can follow on Twitter at VinceCummings81. I'm your host, Kenny Keith of TheBoxingRant.com, and you can follow me on Twitter at Kenny Keith Jr. So I will see you next week, my friend, for episode 43. Uh, you can count on that, my friend. So until next week, we'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in to another episode of the Tale of the Tape Boxing Podcast here on TheBoxingRant.com. 